Welcome to the Talking Serverless Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Jones, joined today by Mark Nenikoven, VP of Cloud Research at TrendMyco, who's been working in the IT field for more than two decades. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you, Ryan? Yeah, doing pretty good. I'm excited to talk to you today. Um, for those listeners out there, you know, uh, you know, what is your background uh, in tech? Yeah, uh, it's it's long um, and definitely uh, different than the normal sort of folks in the serverless community. Um, I've been in tech uh, t- over 25 years now. Um, uh, in any and every role you can think of, I started when I was very young uh, in testing and development. I've done architecture. I've been focused almost exclusively on information security for the better part of the last 20 years or so. Um, most of my uh, security experience in um, large nation state stuff um, by education, I'm actually a forensic investigator um, and then been looking at cloud for the last probably eight, nine years dedicated, uh, which is to say a little bit of everything and always weird and out of the ordinary, which I enjoy. Wow. Okay. So, um, yeah, going back 25 years, how did this whole thing kick off? Uh, when I was real little, um, for those of you that were around back then in tech and stuff, um, I uh, started programming uh, back in the Commodore 64, Commodore 128 days. Um, you know, there was a good underground scene, um, lots of uh, DIY. Um, you know, you had to make uh, some of your own equipment. Uh, you definitely had to help and pass around, uh, you know, software with each other. Um, and everybody was learning and I got hooked uh, and I never have come away. I've always loved that sort of um, that passion, that interest in building something, um, you know, creating something that solves a problem or just does something really, really cool. So a lot of the early, uh, you know, demo scenes um, and that uh, I think explains a lot of my professional background as well is that I, I if I can learn something somewhere, I'm going to dive in um, and explore it because uh, it's just fascinating for me. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So was the kind of sharing around software at that time, is that kind of what led us into the open source uh, that we see today? Yeah, it was uh, sort of pre-open source. I mean, you got to remember, this is, uh, you know, and thankfully, this is a podcast and not a, a video podcast where you can see how much gray I have. Um, you know, this is back in the day when uh, online meant connecting to bulletin boards. It meant, um, you know, an acoustic coupler for a modem, which was if you've ever seen it in like war games, the old movie uh, from the 80s. It's a foam, uh, you know, uh, earpiece and mouthpiece that goes over the old school uh, phones um, to connect you up, you know, 300 baud. And that was just, you know, oh, my God, you connected to a whole world. Um, so very, very early days, very um, core community, which is is something that's held up as, you know, the Internet became a thing um, and then continued. Um, but I think that ethos is still very much present in a lot of communities, um, you know, and it, it ebbs and flows. But it's something that actually I see in the serverless community where a lot of people are going like, hey, there's some really cool tools here. We're all trying to figure this out at the same time because this breaks down a lot of what the existing um, expectations are. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, echoes uh, coming back around 20 some years later. It's it's really cool. Wow. OK. Um, and so so after you got into uh, you know, a very early stage of uh, people starting to share software and build things on the Internet, um, how did how did that transition into like a formal job and where did you start? 
Yeah. So because I've been at this for so long, um, when companies started to really get serious about this stuff, the um, sort of standard HR gates that you see nowadays didn't exist because there was a realization that people didn't, you know, people knew this because they were passionate about it. There wasn't formal schooling um, around it. So um, I got my first uh, program, like first IT job when I was 15. I'm working for a company called Bell Northern Research. I was contracting for them doing uh, testing and development of what would eventually many, many years later become uh, the sort of cable set top boxes. Um, But very early days in the, you know, um, trying to figure out how to program things or how to make uh, a remote viable input device. Um, Very first, uh, you know, steps into web uh, for documentation um, back in the old CGI bin days for everything. And then that moved into uh, doing a lot of contract programming for uh, businesses. I worked for IBM for a number of years, um, then worked for the Canadian federal government uh, for a decade uh, and then moved back into private. Uh, about eight years ago now, uh, moved uh, to work with Trend Micro uh, as a cybersecurity um, vendor, and I'm on the research side of that operation. So kind of a little bit of everything. But yeah, it was a, it was a different time uh, to get started. And I got to think it was maybe easier to get started. Uh, but now I think there's way more opportunity. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So back then, no formal gates, 15 years old, you got your first IT job, um, mm-hmm. slowly transitioned. And then you, you mentioned that you got into uh, working with the Canadian government. And also some uh, more, you know, stuff with Trend Micro. That security side and that security aspect of your background did that naturally develop as you were on the front lines of building this stuff? It did, but I, I think probably not in the way you're thinking. Um, so the interesting thing about security is that it's the one area of IT that absolutely has to touch every other area. Um, and that was one of the big appeals for me was that it's it's very much a puzzle, very much um, when I started um, sort of, uh, I mean, it's still a lot of cutting edge stuff, but it was very much figuring it out as we went. Um, so trying to determine what made sense from a controls perspective, what made sense from getting people just to build things better, um, policies, all this kind of stuff was all new ground. There wasn't the large body of knowledge um, that there is today. Because I mean, you think back uh, basically at 2000. Um, the internet was a very, very different place. Cybersecurity was not uh, a mainline item. You know, you open, well, this is a bad month for it, but before all of the pandemic happened, you couldn't open a newspaper uh, without seeing something about cybersecurity at least once a week. None of that existed 20 years ago. So it was um, just the intellectual puzzle about it, right? Trying to figure out what was going on, why weren't systems working? Because essentially what, you know, security, people think it's kind of mysterious and really, um, you know, requires this huge amount of knowledge. It's the same amount of, it's really the same thing as building something. It's just going one step further and saying, okay, I've built this application that does whatever, or I've built this function or this piece of, you know, this microservice that does this task, but what else can it be made to do? Because I think a lot of people have this blind spot of saying like, well, I built this, uh, you know, this service that allows somebody to log in. Um, but they don't necessarily ask those next questions like, can I log in as you, Ryan? Can I um, make it log me in multiple times? Can I crash the whole darn thing? Um, so I started going at the security from that angle. And then, um, you know, being uh, I really started at sort of the IBM days and then moving into into the government. Um, the government was obviously very concerned about it. They had a huge amount of IT systems. They knew they were a target. Um, so it was, you know, legally mandated that they did a lot of security stuff. So it was a great place to be because I got to touch everything and kind of uh, solve a lot of really high end, complicated problems. Wow. 
Okay. And one thing that you said that was I thought was interesting, uh, as you mentioned that, you know, back then there was not this body of knowledge. Um, it was kind of a mystery. There was a puzzle to be solved. Do you get that same feeling from serverless now? Has that been kind of a driver in your career moving into these different areas? That yeah, that's kind a, of that, play into it? That's a great question. Um, and it's funny because up until last year, um, I was talking with a journalist at RSA uh, 2019 and just off the cuff, and I said, you know, it's really weird. Nobody's ever asked me why I focus on cloud stuff or I'm super interested in serverless. So, you know, you're the second person to ask me, which is great. Um, but it's it, I see serverless as a way um, not so much that it's echoing some of those early days of trying to figure it all out, but as a way to fix uh, the stuff that we've built up over time that we just accept as this is how security has to be done. While it makes sense when you know the history of it and when you've seen it build out and you go, okay, well, you know, the security is a completely different team and they have these strong boundaries and they use things like firewalls and intrusion prevention systems and they insist on all sorts of stuff that slows development down, but they have a reason for it. I see serverless as really a, a, an opportunity for us to fix a lot of the things um, that we would do differently knowing what we know now in security. Um, it kind of gives us that opportunity. It's, I think, the easiest analogy of, you know, when you build version one of something, um, you may get it out the door and it's working, but I guarantee every single one of us go like, yeah, you know what, there's a whole bunch of stuff I do differently and make it far more efficient and change that design. And, you know, if it was 10,000 lines of code, I bet I can write V2 in a thousand lines in a way better architecture. And that's what I think serverless is for security. It's an opportunity for us to do it better. Um, to do it more efficiently and to better support the business simply because we've gone through 20 years of, you know, m not mistakes, but learning hard lessons. Gotcha. So another question that pops in my mind is when you're talking to a company that might have these, uh, the stuff that got built up over time and, you know, maybe serverless can be this kind of fix. How, how would you go about implementing that fix? Would it be starting from scratch? Would it be going back over existing things and then re-implementing it with serverless, uh, what would that look like? Yeah, and I think it's not just a security challenge. I think that's a general um, challenge. So one of the things I absolutely love in cloud that applies to serverless, um, but applies to everything, um, is AWS's well-architected framework. Um, you know, it says AWS in the label, but it's really just a whole bunch of principles about how to leverage cloud services in a modern approach. Um, and one of the things that's right there up front is saying, you know, unless you just started your business today, you've got a whole bunch of existing stuff you've got to deal with. Like it would be nice to be able to clear the books and say, I'm going to rewrite this huge application that my business relies on, um, or I'm going to completely redo this you know, piece of infrastructure like identity. You know, that's a huge issue for most people. But the reality is you can't do that. Um, you know, you still need to move business forward. You still need to make money. You've got customers. So it's a question of finding sort of smaller chunks that work. Um, so if you have a new project, absolutely, you know, spin it up, uh, you know, try aim for serverless, obviously, because there's so many advantages there. Um, if not, try for like containers at a managed level. And if you have to go back old school, go old school. Um, but it, it's it's really finding little pieces of um, opportunity, um, which I think is one of the reasons why we've seen such a big push into microservices. Microservices as a design pattern is not great for a lot of use cases. I think it's overhyped for a lot of people like, oh, you gotta go microservices. I think you uh, you make it a lot more complicated than you need to be. But when you layer on the fact that you have a whole bunch of existing stuff, microservices makes perfect sense because it's the way to kind of take that monolith and hack out usable pieces and rebuild those pieces 
in a modern way until finally you've got everything in a modern way. And then you can reevaluate and say, okay, do we need so many separate services? Can we start to merge things together? What can we move even further into the serverless world? So I don't think it's, you know, as much as I'd love for everybody just to rewrite everything in in a, you know, 2020 uh, future looking way, uh, it's just not real. Um, It's just not the reality of most people um, because you've got to deal with the existing business, which is a nice problem to have. You've got business, you've got customers, you're making money. Um, You know, that's a good thing. Yeah, no, totally. Um, I think that's a really big point to kind of harp on is that, you know, when we think about being in a serverless community surrounded, it can almost be like an echo chamber of people just like riffing off each other and how, you know, great these new services are and the the speed that you can go. But, uh, you know, I've, I've had the experience working in some bigger organizations where they're definitely more in the traditional, you know, virtual machines still have some stuff on premises, they're moving it to the cloud, making that that jump to... Uh, serverless still seems pretty far away. And I guess like I would kind of phrase that question to you is how do you see the adoption rate currently with serverless and these older organizations uh, potentially making that shift at some point? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Because I've seen very much similar things, you know, echoes of of what you've seen as well. Um, And what for me, it always comes back to um, serverless conf in San Francisco in 2018. Um, we did a um, sort of uh, enterprise mini uh, closed door summit um, with some folks. Um, and, you know, it was very much like, hey, this is just going to stay within the walls. So I'm not going to talk about the details. Um, but it was key, you know, some key architects for some really large Fortune 100s who were explaining how they had solved very real problems with serverless. And almost everybody came out of the room either going, okay, I didn't think big, large companies were moving that fast in these areas. And, or I didn't, you know, I thought I was the only one if they were someone in a large company. And I think um, a lot of the large companies have the ability to innovate um, without risking critical stuff. Um, because they've got the uh, the large amount of business, they're not running, um, you know, sort of by the seat of their pants. A lot of smaller companies, a lot of startups, they're focused, um, you know, very specifically on a goal um, as they should be. Uh, when you get into these large enterprises, a lot of the time they have groups whose job is just to innovate and experiment. Um, so it's a surprising how their uptick, uh, how advanced they have been with serverless, because I think the value proposition is is pretty clear. You know, only focus on stuff that matters to you and your business. Um, stop paying people to run infrastructure that nobody ever sees. Um, so I think you know the that it goes against normal intuition where you're like, oh, big companies are going to be super slow. I think a lot of them have some surprising projects, but again, percentage of IT is very, very small because they've got a massive legacy um, estate already. Um, you know, so I think there's there's that weird balance there, but I think everybody's kind of pushing forward, which is great um, because you don't have to go all in, right? You can find one project. A lot of people start serverless by automating some operational stuff that really annoyed them. Um, and then they realize the benefits of it and kind of go from there. All right. Well, yeah, I think that that's super insightful on all these points. Um, to dial it back a bit, just to you know, kind of hit one of the questions that I had top of mind. So when it comes to being the VP of cloud research uh, at Trend Micro, Trend Micro uh, what does your data look like and what type of things are you researching in the cloud? Yeah, great question. Um, I uh, So Trend is uh, a surprisingly large uh, cybersecurity company. We've been in business for 32 years now, I think. 
Um, and we've got folks all over the world. And part of that is we have a rather large research arm. We've got about 1,200 researchers across the globe studying all sorts of, you know, traditional security stuff, all sorts of, um, you know, anything and everything to do with security. And um, we've got people researching it. For me specifically, um, I've been focused on uh, cloud and how it's um, not just the technical controls, um, so as far as like, you know, you lose as soon as you go into the cloud, you're working under the shared responsibility model. Um, so with infrastructure services, something like a, a virtual machine or an instance, um, you're only responsible for half of the areas, right? You take over at the operating system uh, and anything you do to that operating system is totally up to you. Um, but when you go into serverless, you've got a much narrower um, scope of responsibilities, which is a huge security win. Um, but I've been studying, you know, how do security controls change? Um, in general, uh, over that. And then, you know, that was the first steps years ago in, in cloud security research. Um, and that's continued. And now the biggest areas are how does that change our security team structure? How does that uh, change how security is viewed within the enterprise? And then uh, on the technical side, uh, what I've been looking at and what teams at Trend have been looking at is how do security tools move towards the developers? Because one of the huge advantages of serverless, as everybody listening knows, because we're in this world, is that there's way less that you need to worry about, um, right? You're not worried about patching windows. You're not worried about subnet structures in your networking. Um, you know, you're worried about identity and access. You're worried about are the services you're using up and running. Um, you know, observability and monitoring are big things. So the question is, how do we get security tools and security thinking into that um, mindset? Um, and that's really what I've been uh, diving in on in the last, I'd say, well, three years really has been the, the big focus around that. Gotcha. All right. So, yeah, one one more thing that you pointed out there and just kind of reiterate that last point was, you know, uh, so you started researching cloud, virtual machines, uh, looking at the handover and how that, that takes place uh, when we're working on the cloud. And then serverless, smaller scope, uh, big security win, and then less to worry about. But then that one point about how it's transitioned towards the developers. Uh, and the team makeups, how have you seen uh, team structures change with serverless? Yeah, that's a great, great question, because it's a really interesting area. And I think, um, you know, when we look at IT, in a, in a, so we'll ignore startups, because startups, everyone kind of does everything to get the job done, which is great. Uh, when you go into larger companies, things get more segmented as sort of a natural evolution. Um, and I think with serverless, um, I, what I've seen from talking to companies around the world is that you get far more people in the business units building complete solutions. So whereas in traditional IT, uh, you know, a project would involve central corporate IT and they would, you know, set up uh, a VPC for you or they would tell you how you would have to set up your VPCs. Um, they would have standard images that you would take off. Um, you know, they would have structures and, and processes that you would have to follow um, and you would probably have to work with the application development team in central IT. One thing that serverless has been uh, opening up, which I think is wonderful, is the fact that a business unit can can build something that does the complete job um, on their own. They don't have to go back to central IT. They may go for guidance, but they're not um, hamstrung by it. They're not locked into an existing structure. So if you've got a team that's building, um, you know, a, let's say a marketing team that's building a campaign, or you've got a team that's releasing some cool gadget that needs an online component, um, because serverless has that, you know, uh, almost exclusive focus on solving the business problem, 
it's being solved by business, you know, IT people or IT minded people in the business units themselves. And I think that's great because it's finally gets us where we've tried to be for years. Um, but we've been kind of held back by uh, the central structures we've set up. Gotcha. Okay. So <clears throat> serverless has been helping break down these barriers and these kind of like siloed teams. Um, and then now, like with part of the work that you're doing, is that also developing the processes to make these team structures change and how and how that makeup's going to adapt as the security environment changes as well? Yeah. And that's so kind of I, I end up leading a dual life in the, when it comes to serverless. Um, you know, I've been pretty active in the serverless community. I think I started writing like my first post on serverless security in 2016. And I've been to a bunch of the serverless comps. I've hosted them uh, as the MC. I've, I've spoken at them um, and, and talking to the security community about or the serverless community about how um, you know, they need to think in a security mindset, but really in a native way to serverless. And then the other side of what I've been doing is talking to the security people who are, let's be honest, not the most, um, not the happiest people on the block generally. Um, we rightfully so in the security community tend to be viewed as this kind of the team that says no, a little grumpy, um, because there's so much on the plate and the server, uh, security guys are always fighting fires, right? As security teams just uh, always on their back foot trying to solve uh, the problems that are in front of them and keep the business up and running. Um, so part of the work I've been doing on serverless has been talking to those teams and explaining like, hey, this is a positive thing. You're delegating a bunch of the security responsibilities to these service providers. Now, instead of going into the nuts and bolts and saying, I need to defend um, you know, thousands of servers. You don't worry about that because Azure or GCP or AWS is running the compute infrastructure. Um, you just need to worry about code quality and dependencies. So trying to explain to them from a from their perspective and their uh, terms they're used to um, why these uh, why serverless has such a massive security advantage and why everything a security team within a company can do to embrace serverless and to encourage other teams to go the serverless route is a win for everybody. Gotcha. Yeah, so I, I can imagine that that's, that's got to require context switching quite a bit to move into like this like modern way that we're kind of like trying to write these things uh, where there's, you know, it's kind of uh, developers are very empowered and there's less, uh, you know, centralized IT, as you mentioned, and then moving back to, more traditional structures and trying to map out how that works and trying to go through all the, I'm sure you get a lot of feedback and pushback as you're trying to introduce these concepts. That's fair. That is absolutely fair. There's quite a bit of pushback, but I think a lot of people come around to it as well. It's the challenge is knowing why people react the way they do um, and understanding, you know, that everything a, a, an IT security team does makes sense based on, you know, 20 years of decisions and best practices in the industry. Now, when you step into it and say, this is how I want to build things today with serverless, and you look at those practices from the security guys, you go, well, this doesn't line up anymore. Um, that's true. But, you, you know, you need to respect the fact that they got there for a reason. They just didn't randomly start building things this way. Um, and, you know, there is a bridge, there is a way forward. Um, but I think the benefits here, you know, are worth that fight, um, if it is a fight. Uh, but in my experience, a lot of the time, the security teams come around once they get that comfort level. It's just making sure they understand why they should be comfortable. And that takes a little, uh, a little finesse sometimes. Gotcha. So would you say that one of the challenges with serverless in this case would be kind of the knowledge aspect of getting people that haven't been exposed to it that are maybe outside of our community currently? 
having them have the insight into what the benefits are and how it could actually make sense into existing systems. For sure. I think, I think that's true. And I think uh, adding to that, it's a comfort level. Um, so a lot of operations folks, a lot of IT security folks feel comfortable when they can touch the systems, when they know how the nuts and bolts come together to do something uh, bigger. Right. So that they know, you know, this is how the storage network works. Okay. Or this is how our interconnects work with our service providers. When they understand that, they feel better about how things run, even though there's a lot of challenges there and there's a ton of work. When you go to serverless, now you don't really care, which is, I think is a wonderful thing. You know, you care that the service you're relying on. So, you know, if you're building on Cosmos DB in Azure, you care that it's up and running and fully operational and not having a service outage or a service degradation. Beyond that, you don't care how it's managed, uh, right? Like you don't worry about um, whether your particular data instance is, is across, um, you know, 20 servers or 20,000 servers. You just make a call and stuff comes back. That's awesome. Um, you know, and it's the, that shift, I think takes a time for people to understand. Um, and once they get there, they get there, but I think it's just a matter of comfort, um, not just technology. And that's, you know, the human side, the tech side is relatively easy. The human side is what takes time. Really well said. Yeah, definitely the human side. And then, you know, on my end, I see that a lot with the consulting and trying to, you know, work in, into new teams and kind of like integrate and then see how that plays out. And a lot of times it is just a communication uh, area. So I guess like other question I would have for you would be um, when you're communicating uh, serverless and kind of this new implementation, are there ways that you go about communicating it that, uh, that click faster? Have you seen any uh, iterations within your own process? Yeah, um, I have uh, for sure. So I started out by just trying to explain like, look at the benefits, you know, um, you're building on primarily, you know, it ends up being you're building on Google, Azure or AWS. Like, why wouldn't you, uh, you know, because I was already sold on these on cloud services and going, OK, you know, look at the benefits of this. Look at how much more and how much faster um, these teams can build. Right. Like, look at they're they're deploying, uh, you know, 10 times a day. They're getting a customer feature request. And within the week, it's out into production. Like, look at this is amazing. Um, and you know, to be honest, that most of the time freaked people out, um, especially on the security side, because all they heard was, you know, developers doing whatever the heck they want, rapid change in the environment, trusting a big company for key assets about their company. So they just saw complexity, they saw dependencies. And over time, I've realized, while those things are true, that's not the way to start that conversation. What I've found, um, you know, personally, in my interactions to make that uh, work well, is especially for the security people explaining, you know, Azure, AWS, and GCP work on uh, providing world-class services from a security and operations perspective. They live and die by their reputation. Um, they are rock solid and will be able to do this better than any of our teams or your teams in your organization ever will. And that's not a slag or, a, you know, a, a something negative about your teams. It's just a matter of this is all these people do. Right. They just run this global class infrastructure. So relying on that's not a bad thing. And that normally kind of gets people going, OK, well, fine. Um, and then the second part of that of kind of devs going wild and building what they want, um, especially from the security side. And this applies to operations as well, is explaining when people are making more changes to production, that's actually a better thing because those changes are much smaller. 
So while it is happening more frequently, you're actually taking smaller risks because there are smaller changes. So if I update my serverless app and have just changed like the CSS for the, the appearance, like I've changed some colors or something like that, and I deploy that as its own change, if I made a mistake in there and it didn't get caught in any of my uh, testing process in my pipeline, I know what's wrong pretty much immediately because the only thing that went through on that deployment was that one change. Whereas the way we used to do it was that that would be queued up and bundled with a, you know, a few dozen other changes and then pushed out to production because the security process or the operations process didn't support this rapid deployment. And so now with that same, you know, same issue, now I have to dig through a whole bunch of other changes to try to troubleshoot it to figure out what's wrong. So while the initial thing is, oh, you're doing too many changes, they're much smaller changes, which is actually a huge win because you're reducing your overall risk both from a security and an operations perspective. And while serverless people get that, because that's just the way we work, um, other teams aren't there yet. So I think when you tackle those two things, the trust in the big names, and then the fact that you know fast is good because it's smaller risk, then people really start to come around. Yeah, wow. No, that's, that's really well said. Um, it's a really good point that the smaller the changes, the less impact that change could overall have. Um, and I like the idea of starting off with just like laying the foundation of like, Look, these people, thousands of engineers, like you said, this is, this is all that they do. Um, so they're going to be really, really good at it and constantly be changing and, and becoming better. So um, and then and then transitioning, you know, one of the things about like less uh, more changes more frequently, uh, less overall impact, lower security risk on that on that front. Um, when it comes to serverless, where have you seen people? What are the common serverless security things that people sometimes miss? Yeah. Uh, so the biggest challenge around that is where people think of what they need to do when they come to serverless security. They, uh, If you go to standard security guidance, it tends to be what we've always told people, segment stuff off, um, you know, add a whole bunch of extra controls on top. And that doesn't work um, for the most part uh, for a number of reasons. Um, but it all, you know, it, it's too heavy. It slows things down. What you really need to worry about is, you know, four pillars around serverless security. And the first is service selection. Um, as you're building stuff and you're combining all these other services, do each of these services meet your needs? So if you're building something that handles um, like payment data, if that service isn't PCI certified, which is the payment card industry certification, well, you can't handle payment data with it. You just won't be able to get your uh, PCI certification, which means you could be under severe fines if you're transacting um, with credit cards. So making sure you're making smart service selections. Um, the next thing is um, your functions. So, you know, your Lambda functions, your Azure functions, your Google functions. Is your code quality up? And do you have any dependency uh, issues? So a lot of the, the big risk comes with, you know, uh, especially for Node, right? You you make one uh, import in, in Node and all of a sudden, you know, you've got 50 modules uh, linked into your application. A security vulnerability in any of those um, could be a problem. That's where, like, um, the great vulnerability database from Sneak is really handy. Um, you know, so worrying about code quality and dependencies. Uh, the third pillar is really data flow. So how, um, you know, this ties into observability and monitoring within your uh, application as well. It, you know, is data going where it's supposed to be going and only there? Um, and then the last one is really configuration validation. Uh, does, did what you deploy actually end up being what you thought it was? Um, because I think the biggest mistake we see time and time again, um, you know, is easy example, horrible example, way too common example um, is Amazon S3 buckets being open to the public, um, even though they start life completely locked down. 
Uh, there has been billions of records over the last two years exposed to the public needlessly because someone made a configuration mistake. So for serverless security, it's really those four pillars, service selection, code quality in your functions, the flow of data in your app, and then configuration validation. If you focus on those, and you'll notice they're not crazy security things, those just sound like good building uh, criteria anyway, um, then you'll end up with a really secure uh, deployment, which is really the goal for everybody. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I think the four pillars approach is a very succinct way of kind of explaining all those different points. And, you know, the last one talking about S3 buckets, you know, starting out private, it's easy to switch it to public. Um, have you at when you've been doing research and all these things and, you know, at Trend Micro, when uh, S3 buckets turn to public, are there any like any like uh, gates or anything that your security team gets flagged about? Yeah, uh, but we don't actually start with the security teams. Um, we start with the teams who are building, um, right? So we're trying to push the responsibility, and I think everybody should be um, trying to push the responsibility to the teams who are doing the building. Um, and the security team is sort of the last ditch um, effort um, because the you know, like every organization, our security team relative to the number of engineers is is small. Um, We've got, even though we're a security company, I know that sounds crazy, um, but, uh, you know, we have, I think, 3,000 engineers around the world building stuff. Um, and, you know, we definitely don't have 3,000 security people. Uh, so the idea is to enable developers uh, and builders to check their own stuff. So as part of every pipeline we have, we've got configuration checking in place um, uh, so that, you know, that's one of the checks we make is that if, hey, is this public uh, bucket supposed to be public? Yes or no. Um, and we record that it's it's part of the build report It's part of the testing report. Um, and, you know, when it flips, it definitely raises alarms. But I think the, the strategy for everybody should be to catch that as locally as possible. Um, and there's some great tools out there uh, that will help you monitor those configurations. A bunch of them are from AWS and Azure and GCP have the same for their block storage, too. Um, but, uh, yeah, trying to catch it with the builder. So if you and I are building a serverless app. Our pipeline should be notifying us, you know, in Slack going like, hey, guys, uh, did you mean this bucket to be public? Because it's pu public now. And that at least either gives you the opportunity to stop it before it goes live or uh, catch it very, very quickly. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I love that. So empowering the teams themselves to be able to uh, self uh, monitor and kind of self heal themselves. And and then and then for the, you know, the wider future of serverless and how the adoption is increasing, um, what what trends are you seeing? from your side? I'm seeing a lot more. Uh, so part of my role as well is that I, I work with Microsoft, Google, and AWS um, with their roadmaps and see where they're going, um, you know, because Trend's a partner of all of them. Um, and I've been, uh, I have a long history with AWS as well, um, you know, personally. And uh, so seeing where their roadmaps are going. And I think one of the biggest trends for serverless is that more and more services that are getting announced from the big three are designed with serverless aspects or serverless in mind we're getting less of these services that are, uh, hey, fire up an instance or a virtual machine, and that's yours, and you know we'll manage it, um, you know, but then you can, can leverage the data off of it. So I think just the availability, now there's still some disappointing gaps um, that are there, but uh, you know, we're seeing more and more acceptance. Um, huge thing for serverless, I think in general, was in 2019, every single AWS keynote called out serverless as sort of the way to start. Um, and, you know, then there's even for the for the container uh, hype, there are services like Fargate um, or uh, Google Cloud Run. I'm a huge fan of 
Um, Brett from that team gave a great talk at Serverless Conf uh, explaining why, even though it was a container service, what the goal of that service was, which was to take your containers and make them more serverless I guess is the term, uh, but to make them fit into that paradigm. So I think, you know, for the trend in the community, the understanding from the cloud providers that this is where we want to go, this is where they want to go. Um, that just means there's more cool stuff coming, uh, you know, this year and, and in the years coming uh, that are going to let us build even more of our solutions in serverless because it's not the one way to build everything. There's still areas where it makes sense to go other routes. Um, but those cases are getting more edge case rather than the norm, which is a wonderful thing. Gotcha. And and kind of like a high level concept of that is that uh, even though it may be a container or it or it could be a you know cloud function, uh, I guess like the overarching theme there is that these are kind of like fully managed services. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen that kind of encompass what serverless means to you or to the people that you interact with? Um, how do you, how would you define it? Define serverless. Yeah. Oh, wow. There we go. We're getting into the classic fight, eh? Um, Yeah. uh, (laughs) And this has been a challenge from day one, right? Um, And I think serverless, the definition has changed in general. Um, But I I mean, I see it used three different ways. Um, I prefer definitely one. So, you know, I see it used serverless. People are talking only about compute. Um, So they're talking about Lambda, Azure functions, or cloud functions. I see it when they're talking about how a service runs, so a managed service, um, where you don't have to worry about the underlying infrastructure. People use serverless like an adjective there. Um, But for me, I really stick to, when I'm talking about serverless, I I think it's that design pattern that's combining a bunch of those abstract or SaaS-level services um, and using functions as a service uh, to create a unique application out of those parts. Um, and I think that goal where you're not running infrastructure, um, where you've combined a bunch of unique managed services to deliver something with a very low operational overhead, that's serverless. I think that has a huge benefit for us as developers. I think that has a huge benefit for the businesses and the organizations we're working for. All right. Well, I think that this has been super insightful for me personally. I, I know for our listeners as well. Um, thank you so much, Mark. Uh, do you have anything to promote uh, as we wrap up? I do actually, but it's not my thing. Um, so with all the changes, uh, what I wanted to call out um, was a uh, virtual fundraising tech conference that's coming up April 15th, um, allthetalks.online. So this was uh, spearheaded um, by uh, Patrick Dubois and uh, the folks at Sneak. Um, and it is focusing around DevOps, development, security. There'll be a ton of serverless stuff in there. Um, so it's going all the way around the clock. So uh, 24 hours of online uh, talks from a ton of really cool people in the uh, community. Um, and there's going to be a great opportunity for us to learn and interact with each other. So that's happening on April 15th at allthetalks.online. Gotcha. All right. Yeah, definitely check out allthetalks.online on April 15th. That sounds really cool. Um, and yeah, and, and thank you again for being our guest. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And to all those listening, uh, this has been the Talking Serverless podcast with Ryan Jones. If you like our show and want to know more, check out TalkingServerless.io or please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And join us next time as we sit down with another fantastic guest. Bye.